Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Oakland County was kind of the quintessential suburban America. It was uh, very white, middle class, upper middle class, uh, reliably Republican, and really played a huge role in electing Republicans statewide in Michigan for decades, and now is a blue county uh, and will, I think, keep Michigan firmly in the Democrats' column uh, over the next decades. Today, suburbs. That's right, the land of minivans, garages, roller skates, and cul-de-sacs. It will be forever before another Republican sniffs a victory in Oakland County. I'm Eugene Daniels. This is Playbook Deep Dive. The Republican collapse in Michigan's Oakland County, once a stronghold, was a long time coming. It was like, you know, what's going on here? How can we stop this from happening? Is losing these suburbs a warning light for Trumpism? I live and breathe Twitter, so yes, I, you know, political Twitter is, is oxygen. Jeff Timmer is a longtime Republican strategist in Michigan. For years, he led the state's Republican Party. I was executive director of the Michigan Republican Party, and I am a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project. Yeah, that Lincoln Project. Never Trump Republicans who spent tons of money on anti-Trump ads last election. Jeff is the guy who helped draw the election maps in Michigan. He helped elect Republicans for decades. Uh, most won't talk to me anymore. <laughs> and now that very party lost in a reliably Republican suburban county, one that Jeff used to base some of his strategy on. If I was still a Republican and wanted Republicans to win, uh, I would look at this as a, you know, certainly as a big math problem. Republicans from Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell right on down seem to have had enough of Donald Trump, but then they quickly realized their math is electing majorities, becoming speaker, becoming Senate majority leader again, and they decided that they would sacrifice and jettison 244 years of American democracy in order to achieve that. You know, the Republican Party over the last few cycles has had real difficulties in some of the traditionally Republican communities that they used to really excel in. Our Playbook deputy editor, Zach Stanton, is a Michigan boy born and bred. So Michigan Michigan is shaped like a mitten, the lower peninsula at least. Okay. Um, and so if you're holding up your hand, uh, I am from Metro Detroit, which is the knuckle of the thumb. And he performed his own autopsy on these suburbs so that we can figure out just what's going on and what that means for Republicans on the Hill and in affluent suburbs throughout the country. Oakland County is sort of the ground zero for this, the shift of these voters who used to be uh, Republican, used to identify as Republican, who now feel sort of alienated from the GOP and are, if not out-and-out -out Democrats, then have been voting for Democrats. They might not consider themselves Democrats quite yet, but they have been pretty active in supporting Democratic candidates more or less all the way down the ballot. And that's really shifting 
the way not only our electoral map looks in terms of the presidency, but the way that our congressional maps look and the way that our state legislative maps look even. And in that way, Oakland County is sort of a bright red flashing warning sign uh, to the Republican Party in some ways. For those that don't know, Zach is a deputy editor of Playbook. I am an author of, of said Playbook, and therefore he's usually in charge of me. But today, baby, I'm the captain now. That's me. I'm in charge here. You, as I recall, are, are sitting in the White House right now, and I am sitting in my apartment closet for Ideal Acoustics. So I feel like there's a, a power imbalance in many different ways. I, I was begging that you were going to be in that closet there. <laughs> Tell me what Oakland County is like, and, and describe it as sides at a potluck. Like, <laughs> is this a potato salad place? Is this big beans? Like, what's give me the, give me the flavor of Oakland County. So Oakland County is a mix of a couple different things. There are, I would say, like four or five different types of communities in Oakland. There are these really wealthy enclaves, uh, places like Birmingham, Bloomfield Hills, which is where the Romney family has been based. That's probably, uh, for lack of a better comparison, like a charcuterie board. Um, <laughs> there are sort of middle-class suburbs that are densely populated, traditionally democratic. I guess those are... Those are potato salad. You know, it's nothing particularly flashy, but, you know, it, it's kind of essential. Uh, there are these sort of changing large cities, places like Troy and Novi that used to be Republican. They're very large places, uh, but they've had huge demographic shifts such that now their politics are sort of turning upside down. Um, so I guess that would be... Uh, a pineapple upside down cake I'll go with. <laughs> That's pretty good. I'm Thank hungry you. now. I, I'm doing my best. Um, <laughs> there are, I don't know, there are places as well that are just sort of like not flashy cities like Pontiac that I guess are like, um, I guess like baked beans. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I feel like I'm really torturing this metaphor at this point. Um, but <laughs> the, but I, I think you're going to hear from people of Oakland County is what's going to end up happening. I, I am almost certain. Like, excuse you, sir. Not a baked bean. Yes, I am certain that there will be complaints. Yes. So I remember when you were writing the story because we were in some of our playbook meetings and we were like, oh, how long is it? And you were like, eight million words. <laughs> it was like, the, you just like, it was one of those pieces where there was just so much information and so much history. As you talk about this place that used to be like a Republican stronghold kind of switching a little bit. It felt like after 2016 and the years after that, all we talked about was the opposite, right? We talked about, you know, places where Democrats used to really own it and, and, and then we were becoming more Republican. And so I guess, like, is Oakland County something that's happening by itself or is, is Oakland County an example of what's happening in other places like it around the country? Yeah, so I am from one of those places that is was traditionally Democratic and that has been trending Republican. I'm from Macomb County, which is next door to Oakland and is sort of mm -hmm. famous in political circles as this national political bellwether. And actually, the reason that I wanted to write this piece was because I saw Macomb, as happens every four years, getting a ton of attention in national media. Good evening, Macomb County! And that prompted me to contact a guy named Stan Greenberg, who is the pollster who came up with the term for Reagan Democrats back in the 80s. The Reagan Democratic era. Uh, the Reagan Democrats. The Reagan Democrats. Reagan, my mother was a Reagan Democrat. And Reagan Democrats were these sort of blue-collar voters who were traditionally Democratic, but 
felt increasingly alienated from the Democratic Party and were socially conservative and increasingly identifying with Ronald Reagan's Republican Party. And so identifying Reagan Democrats sort of put them at the center of the American political discussion in some ways for the last several decades. So I wanted to talk with Stan about whether or not there was sort of a mirror image of the Reagan Democrats happening uh, with, for lack of a better term, Biden Republicans. <laughs> and the Biden Republicans are, you know, again, these sort of traditionally Republican voters, affluent, college educated, might be sort of economically moderate to conservative, but are generally socially liberal and feel alienated from the Republican Party, much in the way that the Reagan Democrats did a generation earlier. And when I was talking with my editors about this, you know, they were asking, well, you know, where is the home of the Biden Republicans? And instinctively, I just said Oakland County, which is again <laughs> right next door. So, you know, Oakland County is like a lot of affluent suburban counties that are traditionally Republican, you know, and, and Stan, when I was talking with him, you know, cited like Gwinnett County in Georgia. And you see places like Oakland in suburban New Jersey, you see it in the suburbs of pretty much every single major city in the country, these longtime Republican strongholds that have been purple to blue and where the turnout has been enormously high, was enormously high under the Trump years, but also very strong for Democrats. But again, that's not happening in a vacuum. In places like Macomb County, you have support for Republicans going up and up and up. And part of what made Biden's campaign successful is that he was able to compete in many of those traditionally democratic places where Republicans have made inroads, but he was able to lose there, but lose better than Hillary Clinton did. And that is more or less the story of the election in Michigan. And I think is to some degree, the story of what happened in, in some of the other states that were swing states that went ultimately for Biden this past November. God, that was only in November. That feels like a million years ago. Anyway, <laughs> so, I was like, wait, no, that wasn't last November. It couldn't possibly be. So you touched on it a little bit, but I really want to get you to drill down here. These formerly strong Republican enclaves are changing. Something's happening. But what are the reasons why they're changing, right? Like, as you're looking at it, as we are seeing some of these, I guess what you said, Biden Republicans, we're seeing these Biden Republicans not just vote for Biden, but vote for the other Democrats as well, right? And so yeah. what are the reasons they're doing that? Because, you know, I just got off of TV <laughs> talking about how, like, intractable our politics are, right? And how no one's changing their minds. So what are the reasons these people are changing their minds about politics? I would say that there are like three major themes that are going on and they sort of interact with one another. One is that the Republican Party has had a lot of problems down ballot in some of these places. And part of that has to do with Donald Trump purely because as we've seen local media dry up in a lot of places, mm. it is really difficult for candidates at the local level to have an identity separate from the way that the national party, whether it's the Republican Party or Democratic Party, to have their own identity separate from that. And so when Donald Trump becomes the sort of alpha and omega of what it means to be a Republican, mm -hmm. and it becomes really difficult to be a Republican and, you know, to be maybe not 100% there uh, when it comes to Donald Trump, when that's the case, you are going to turn off a lot of people who are maybe uneasy about Donald Trump, but potentially would be interested in supporting a more moderate Republican down ballot. So that's one element to it. Another is the Democratic Party has made some very strategic long-term investments in places like Oakland County or in places like the suburbs of, of Atlanta, 
where they have invested in long-term infrastructure, uh, and that means identifying voters that are already there who maybe vote in presidential elections, but just kind of drop out when it comes to the rest of the ticket and getting them to vote down ticket, but also in recruiting candidates that are a good fit for their districts. In places like Oakland County, as we saw, Mitt Romney's hometown, for instance, is now represented by a Democratic woman in the state house, a woman named Mari Manoogian. It's represented by a Democratic woman in the state Senate, uh, Mallory McMorrow. It's represented by a Democratic woman in the U.S. House, Haley Stevens. And that is a huge shift from the way that a place like Bloomfield Hills and Birmingham, from the way that those places typically voted. And it was not conceivable that a Democrat would win in those places just a couple election cycles ago. I mean, these are districts that were, in Michigan's case at least, drawn by Republicans as safe GOP districts literally less than a decade ago. But then the third aspect of this and sort of the the thing that has really electrified all of this are these major demographic changes that are happening in suburbs. The image that we've had of suburbs for a long time is of sort of white, leave it to beaver style homes, um, traditional nuclear family, husband, wife, a couple of kids. And that's not exactly what the suburbs are like anymore. Suburbs are really diverse and diverse in a way that we typically don't really think about them being. And what you've seen in places like Oakland County, but in affluent counties throughout the country, is that as the Republican officials at the local level have really brought in economic development and sought out things like growing tech sectors and life sciences and medical sectors, they've tried to bring in more college graduates and they've tried to bring in more immigrants. And certainly that was the case of what happened in Oakland County. And so they, for decades, brought in these groups. These groups have transformed the way that the county votes because they aren't necessarily Republican voters. Maybe they used to be, maybe they were Republican curious, but at the same time that they became such huge numbers of the population in a place like Oakland County, the Republican Party nationally became such that having a college degree became a big predictor of whether or not you voted Republican. You know, it is now perhaps the biggest predictor of whether or not you will vote for the Democrat is if you have a college degree. Mm. Became a party that increasingly was seen as hostile to immigration and became a party that, in the eyes of many social moderates, was too conservative on social issues. And so it's this mix of the way that the changing demographics and the changing politics and the changing image of the parties have all sort of interacted with one another. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing that when I talk to Democrats, they often just say, well, because of Trump. It's not that simple, but it is connected. Right. It feels like the changes have happened over the last, you know, five or six years. Like they were changing a little bit under Obama in that second term, mm-hmm. but kind of sped along by President Trump winning and yeah. doing the things that he did and saying the things that he said while he was president. Yeah, I, was, I think in that way, Trump is is a symptom in some ways, mm. but he's also a cause in others, you know? Um, <laughs> it, it's, it, it's difficult to, to fully separate the two. Hmm. Nuance. We love it here. Not on Twitter, <laughs> but here. Um, 
You talked to this spokesperson from the Republican National Committee who was basically like shoulder shrug emoji, right? Like we know that they kind of have to say that, mm-hmm. right? Like you, they can't be like, oh, my God, we're so scared about Oakland County and other mm-hmm. places like it. So you talked about seeing the Democratic places moving to Republican. Some of this feels like if not the natural push and pull of politics, like a readjustment that mm-hmm. has happened before, right? Like the, that party has shifted. Their politics have shifted. Yeah. Like. Is this the natural push and pull of how politics works? I think to some degree, when you have a two-party system, politics is always about dividing the country in half. You know, you you try and get <laughs> as close as you can to 50% plus one, essentially. Mm-hmm. So politics is always going to have a push and pull to it. And so what you saw, I think, at the start of the Trump years was a lot of people say that it sort of represented the great sorting of people into Hmm. political tribes. And I think now being out of the Trump years, we can say that, yeah, it did mark the end of like one chapter of that, but you know, history is an ongoing thing. I mean, it it never just like stops. So yeah, it was the end in some ways, but it it began a new cycle of push and pull uh, all over again. So now you've seen, you know, certain demographics that, used to vote Republican, you know, aren't voting Republican or certain groups that the Democratic Party assumed would vote Democratic in larger numbers now, you know, are not voting Democratic in the numbers that they quite would have liked. Mm-hmm. Last week, the Pew Center came out with this great big deep dive into the 2020 election numbers. And one of the major things that they highlighted as explaining the 2020 election is what happened with suburban voters. And that, in some ways, is the story of the election. Um, You know, Hillary Clinton lost the suburbs in 2016. She got like 45 percent of self-identified suburbanites. Biden won 54 percent of of the suburb. Hmm. And among suburban whites in particular, Trump in 2016 won that group by 16 points. And Trump in 2020 won suburban whites by only four points. And that's a huge, huge shift. And so when you have this mix of suburbs that are becoming more diverse and then the margins for what it means to you know, get the votes of white suburbanites for the margins to narrow so drastically, it really changes the way that these politics shake out. We know based off of you're a big history nerd, I'm a <laughs> history nerd. You're a much bigger history nerd than I am. I just want to say that that is a compliment, everybody. Love a history nerd. You know, uh, just in, in terms of being a nerd, I would note, Eugene, that you, you were a, a varsity athlete who played college football. Uh, and uh, I was a secret nerd. I, I, I by contrast, had had varsity letters in quiz bowl and marching band. Um, so, uh, so, so uh, yes, we are both nerds. Yes, yeah, we are both nerds. And yeah, I was a later, I was a late bloomer on the nerd front. Um, so, I mean, based on history, we know that Republicans are poised mm-hmm. to take back at least the House in 2022. And then you throw in redistricting, which there are more Republican-held state legislatures, which will kind of draw things how they want. We know how that goes, and that will last for 10 years. So even with this, you know, what's happening in Oakland County, why should Republicans change anything? Should they change anything? Well, that that's a Totally valid question. You know, whether or not they should change anything is a question ultimately for, for the Republican Party to make. You know, oh my it, God, what uh, a dodge. 
<laughs> let me let me answer that a different way then. So look, I don't know what the Republican Party should do. Uh, I would say that in this way, Oakland County is sort of a warning sign in some ways. And mm. that, again, you had Republicans controlled the redistricting process in Michigan for congressional districts uh, the past several cycles. And at the end of every one of those cycles, these districts that were drawn to be safely Republican and that included places like Oakland County have now become Democratic. So there are four U.S. House seats based in Oakland County. Mm -hmm. A decade ago, two of them were Republican and two were Democratic. Right now, all four are Democratic. (laughs) Uh, You had at the local level, after the redistricting going into the 2012 cycle, the county commission in Oakland County had a Republican-drawn redistricting cycle where they had 21 seats and drew a 14-7 to Republican gerrymandered majority. Democrats have now taken the majority on the Oakland County Commission. So you can draw these lines thinking that you're creating long-term advantages for your party. But if, if you aren't doing the things to appeal to the voters who will actually be decisive in those districts, and if you aren't nominating and supporting candidates who are able to have an identity of their own and be able to compete in districts like this, then you're going to have problems. Our colleague Ali Mutnick had a, had a story about this yeah. this week in Politico about the difficulty that Republicans face when it comes to redistricting. And there is this great quote in it from Congressman Patrick McHenry from North Carolina who said, you know, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. And that's, I think, the difficulty in some ways is that you can create a sort of somewhat safe Republican majority using gerrymandering. But if you get a little too greedy, these things can backfire in really big ways. Mm One of the unknown factors of 2022 when it comes to like, you know, history says blank is Trump, right? Mm -hmm. He has said that he's going to choose primary opponents of some of these folks that are in office right now, especially those that voted either to impeach or convict him. And Rachel Bade and I did a live playbook event with Tom Emmer, who is Mm -hmm. the head of the Republican arm in the House. And he said, you know, we asked him about this and he said, you know, it would not be helpful for President Trump to do that. And so that was in front of a camera. But but when you talk behind the scenes with other Republicans, they say the same thing. They use different language, stronger words because they're not on the record. Right. When it comes to 2022, Donald Trump kind of being around picking primary people, One of the biggest things that you hear from Republicans who are concerned is that he's going to pick people in suburban districts, places like Oakland County, who are of the Marjorie Taylor Greene, of the Paul Gosar, of the, you know, the America First ilk. And they're just going to get slaughtered at the ballot box. And then Republicans won't take back the House. Right. And so that is a complicating factor in all this. It's a hugely complicating factor because then you have the question of, okay, well, if if that happens and that's a big if. Right. But if that happens, then what? Then you have a smaller Republican conference that is comprised almost exclusively of people in really safe Republican districts that are going to be probably more Trumpy than you would have if you had Republicans from some of these moderate districts. And so then it could very well be the fact that let's say that happens and let's say it doesn't work out well for the Republican Party. It may actually work out well for Donald Trump. It may result in him having more of a grip on the Republican Party because those that are left are fully on board. Yeah. We 
not you and I, but this country has had this conversation <laughs> before, right? Like, what should Republicans do after a loss, right? Like, it was in 2012. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Republicans, they did their own autopsy and found that they needed to open the tent. They needed to, you know, stop saying certain things. Yeah. But then in 2016, Trump won. Yep. Even though the party didn't do literally anything that was recommended. Right. Literally, it was like everything was like the exact opposite. So the question is, is there really a problem for Republicans? If they can still, especially at the federal level, kind of just win, even though they ignore the warning signs of places like Oakland County, for example, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like, does it matter? Does anything matter, Zach? But does it, does it, does it <laughs> matter? Does it matter to when it comes to their political future? I think it does matter. And I think it matters because Trump's election in 2016 was sort of a triple bank shot. You know, it it wasn't something Mm -hmm. that was just totally straightforward. He won Michigan by under 11,000 votes statewide. Um, That is vanishingly minuscule. And if you don't get those same sort of margins in a place like Michigan or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin, then you're not going to be competitive nationally. Mm. The Republican Party, since the first Bush administration, has won the popular vote in the presidential election once since 1988. That is a problem if you are trying to enter office with a mandate to govern. Uh, You have certain advantages for the Republican Party in that the Senate, the way that it's composed with every state getting two votes has certain built-in advantages for a lot of rural states that maybe don't have the same population as a place like California. You know, California has two senators. They have uh, however many tens of millions of residents. (laughs) Wyoming has two senators and has, I think, fewer than 600,000 residents. 34 people. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, it is a long-term problem. But as you note, after 2012, the Republicans did this autopsy where they made so many recommendations about what the Republican Party should do. They included, you know, having a more diverse coalition, being more welcoming of immigrants. And then a couple years later, you have Donald Trump, who ascends to power, doing largely the opposite of what the autopsy advised. So I take your point. You know, it may be that they don't need to follow (laughs) what the autopsy suggests that they should do. But I think that what's relevant there is that There was an ability to have self-reflection after the 2012 election and to think about, okay, we lost. What should we do differently if we don't want to lose next time? And it turned out that the guy who was elected didn't take any of their advice. And on the one hand, you could say that means that their advice is worthless. But on the other hand, it also means that they, at least in 2012, we're in touch with reality. They understood that they lost. They were willing to admit that they lost and they were able to reflect about what it is that they perhaps should do to remain competitive, not only in the presidential election, but in house elections and in local elections. But now, uh, since the 2020 election, when you aren't willing to even necessarily admit that you lost, you can't have any sort of discussion about what you should do differently because hmm. you aren't even admitting that you lost in the first place. That complicates things, huh? Just a little bit. Looking ahead, to to what degree is Oakland an indicator of what's to come in 2022? How excited should Democrats be about places like Oakland County serving as an indicator? And how worried should Republicans be? I think that Oakland County and places like Oakland County are going to be the real battlefield that the 2022 election is fought. 
I should say Republicans did make gains in some affluent suburbs in, in 2020. You had the election of people like Young Kim in, in Orange mm. County, a uh, Republican rising star there. But she's someone who is not particularly Trumpian either. That's exactly right. It, that's exactly <laughs> right. You know, she, she is a good fit for that district and she isn't mm-hmm. Trumpy. But that is kind of the exception that proves the rule in some ways, you know, that hmm. you, you need to have these candidates who are able to have their own identity separate from the party. And this is true of Democrats as well, you know, that Alyssa Slotkin and Haley Stevens, the two Democrats who picked up the Republican seats in Oakland County, they have identities that were largely separate from the National Democratic Party. And that, in some ways, shows the advantage that the Democrats have in some ways, is that they aren't forcing everyone to essentially be on board 100% of the time with whoever the leadership of the party is, whereas it's much more difficult right now to be a Republican and not on board with Donald Trump 100% of the time. As you talk to these Republicans and you you were doing your reporting about Oakland County, what specifically do you think Republicans will do to turn the tide? What what specific strategies? Do they seem concerned that these things are actually happening, that places like Oakland County are kind of falling out of their grasp? Like, will they turn the tide? <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's a huge question. You know, some of them, certainly the ones at the local level, generally speaking, are concerned. The ones who hmm. who are in office. You know, I, I talked with one state senator who's a Republican in Oakland County who used to be in the state house and now he's in the state senate, which is about a district three times the size population-wise in Michigan. And it's a much more diverse district than he had in the state house and has a huge Indian American population. And he talks about, you know, he would go to these events trying to just make himself known to people in the Indian American community. He talked about going to a Bollywood dance-off, which was very much not in his comfort zone, or going to events at, at the temple. And he came away from those experiences just amazed that his fellow Republicans weren't even, in many cases, showing up. They, they weren't even making themselves known because in, in his mind, if you talk to these people, if you talk to these voters, the issues that they care about in his eyes are Republican issues. Mm. They are very pro-family values. You know, many of them are business owners. They want low taxes. They don't support things, as he said, like defund the police. And so he sees them as potential Republican voters, but he doesn't see Republicans even showing up uh, to make themselves known, doesn't see Republicans even showing up to appeal to reach out to these voters. And so when you have that, and then at the same time, you have a dynamic where everyone who is a Republican kind of has to be on board with Trump, who you know is not the most popular figure with a lot of immigrants in the United States and with a lot of Indian Americans you know, that creates real problems for the party because there are these instances where there is potential for them to grow. But if they aren't able to even get the candidates out there who would appeal to these groups who could vote Republican, then you're not going to make gains in these places where you could. And you're going to cede these groups and these voters to Democrats. Zach, this is such a great article, and I think everyone should read it. And Zach, thanks for for doing this. Thanks so much for having me, Eugene. 
And that's our show. Our producers are Adrian Hurst and Annie Rees. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. And our executive producers are Reen Noguchi. Mike Zappler edits Playbook's daily newsletter. Our music is by the mysterious Brickmaster Cylinder. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you're listening right now. We'll take you behind the scenes of Capitol Hill again next week on another Playbook Deep Dive. Thanks for listening. <laughs>